Good morning. I'm Sheila Cast. We're on the record. Steaming hot chicken noodle soup, chewy oatmeal chocolate chip cookies, apple pie with a perfect crust. Sure, food is a necessity, but it can also nourish the soul. And what role does food play in our connections to heritage or to home? Our guests today are featured in a series of videos and essays that explore those questions and more, particularly for immigrants to America. It's called Food at Home. One episode is from lawyer and author Rabia Chaudhry. Abu loves kala chana, black chana pilau, made with a smaller variety of chickpea, the Bengal gram that's unpeeled. Abu loves pilau so much that he does something with it I've never seen anyone else do, and I still refuse to try. He pours whole milk over a bowl of warm chana or mutter pilau and eats it like a bowl of cereal. I chalk it up to some childhood memory he holds dear, and anytime he asks for it, I happily comply. Chaudhry will join us in a few minutes to talk about her new book that is a memoir of food, fat, and family. First, here to tell us about the Food at Home series is writer and educator Saima Sitwat. Sitwat also created the video series Becoming American and is the author of American Muslim, An Immigrant's Journey. Welcome back to On the Record, Saima. Thank you, Sheila, for having me over once again. And also with us is Sue Ku, a board member of Maryland Humanities, who will be part of a panel discussion at Mira Kitchen Collective on Wednesday. Welcome to On the Record, Sue. Thank you for having me, Sheila. Saima, how did you come up with the idea for Food at Home? When I was doing uh, my last project, Becoming American, as you mentioned, uh, I was talking to women for uh, the stories that I was doing. And uh, it was at that point that I realized that food is such an important part of what immigrants bring along with themselves to the United States. Um, and as they continue to write their stories in the U.S., uh, food continues to be a constant in them. It uh, it serves as that uh as that constant that provides a link between the old and the new. And it is also one of the aspects of identity that passes on from one generation to the next. Sue, your video is the second in the series. What recipes did you share? Yeah, I share three different variations of cooking zucchini. Um, zucchini is something definitely I love. And my grandmother and my mother, back in South Korea, they always have their own garden. And all the zucchinis I had when I was little, they came from their gardens, along with the cucumbers, tomatoes, um, some other ingredients. So I picked zucchini because that's comfort food for me. And it's really easy to cook. That's why I showed three different ways to cook them very quickly for anybody in my video. I got to tell you, it is mind-opening for me to he- think of zucchini as comfort food. I'm, I'm anxious to see your recipes. <laughs> what do those recipes mean to you? What, what memories do they conjure? Zucchini actually is a very typical ingredient to make some dishes to celebrate Autumn Festival, which is honored by some Asian countries, including South Korea as well. Like it's based on lunar calendar. So each year it's a little different, but usually sometime in September and or October, 
and there's a harvest of everything, the Asian or South Korean version of Thanksgiving. And my mom always cooked uh, fried zucchini, zucchini pancake, um, especially uh, pan-fried zucchini. And we actually helped her cooking. Um, and then we used that food, the dish, to share that with other family members, to talk about other family members, to talk about my grandparents and great-great-parents. And also we took the dish to our ancestors' graves. And then we hosted a type of ceremony to honor them. So her zucchini recipe, my grandmother's zucchini recipe, it's all about family, love, gathering, and comfort, of course. Seema, all those participating in the series are women. How did you make that decision? That was a very important decision to make, Sheila. Um, And there are two reasons for that. The first one is that today more and more women are going out to work and a large share of women in uh, America does work outside of house. Uh, But still, almost 80% of women continue to prepare meals and uh, in households with children, especially. So that was one reason, because in the daily routine of life, women are the one who are doing cooking at home. Uh, But secondly, also because um, I was talking about immigrant cultures, and most of the times family recipes are passed on from uh, through women from one generation to the next. So women are getting together during holidays and celebrations and cooking foods together. And that is how these recipes are transferring from one generation to another. And these are the two reasons why I wanted to uh, keep this project to women. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with author and educator Saima Sitwat and contributor Sue Koo. We're talking about Food at Home, a series of videos and essays that explore the role food plays in the lives of immigrants in the U.S., from nostalgia to cultural pride. Sue, are Korean foods a big part of your menu at home? Um, I would say yes and no, because my husband is not Korean. So sometimes I cook all different types of cuisines, other international cuisine. It's also because now I am in a completely dual mode. I hope that makes sense because I am Korean at the same time I am American. So as a Korean American, whenever I want, I can cook Korean food, I can cook something else. So I really feel like I am practicing diversity on my own with my food recipe, including Korean recipes. And I feel like when I share my Korean food with others, I feel like I'm engaging more with other diverse communities. And when I cook, let's say, American food, French food, or Italian food, I really love make like variation. I really love uh, tailoring, customizing it. So I add a little bit of Korean taste to those cuisines. Um, So I would say sometimes, yes, I cook very authentic Korean food. Sometimes I cook other dishes, but I can add a Korean um, beauty a little bit to it. Um, So I would say like half and half. Asayma, what are the topics for the panel discussion Wednesday at Mira Kitchen Collective? So the panel at Mira features four of the women who have been featured in Food at Home, and they will be talking about uh, their families' 
uh, food journeys in United States as well as their own and as some of them are raising children here. Uh, also, we will be talking about Thanksgiving, which can get interesting in immigrant households sometimes because not all of us, like myself, uh, come from countries where you find Turkey. So there are interesting creations and things that happen around Thanksgiving meal in immigrant households. Here's a clip from another contributor, Monica Brown, discussing how she looks at what is considered American food. You think of what? Burgers, hot dogs, macaroni and cheese, barbecue. However, America has, since the beginning of it, has been a a mixture of people. So, for example, like Chinese food, right? You have your true Chinese food and you have your American Chinese food. Yeah. So is it American food? I mean, Chinese food, of course, is an American, but there's an American version of Chinese food here, which you wouldn't get if you went to China. It's Americanized. It, it just goes through changes depending on what's available here and the mixture of people that you have here. Saima what do you want people to take away from the Food at Home series? I want people to be curious and to be open to other cultures. Um, I feel that we are at a point in our country's history when some of us uh, can sometimes become very closed and uh, and the political rhetoric regarding immigrants that we hear in politics can sometimes be very discouraging and divisive. Uh, but food is something that we all enjoy and it brings out the shared humanity in us. Also, the concept of breaking bread together uh, is just beautiful. So I want people to be open-minded, to enjoy enjoy other cultures, learn from each other, and uh, enjoy good food. It sounds like so much fun. Thank you for telling us about all this. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. Saima Sitwat is an author and educator. We've been talking about Food at Home, a series of videos and essays to which Sue Koo, a board member of Maryland Humanities, is a contributor. The series looks at the role food plays in the lives of immigrants and how food has the power to provide a home away from home. Wednesday at 6 p.m. there'll be a panel discussion, Food at Home, an evening of storytelling food and belonging at Mira Kitchen Collective, 1301 North Calvert Street. We have a link to more information and to the video and essay series at the On the Record page at WIPR.org. Short break now on the record. When we're back, we'll talk with the author of the memoir, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, about the role of food in her Pakistani immigrant family and in her life. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking today about the role food plays in our lives, our families, and our cultures. We just heard about Food at Home, a series of videos and essays about the role food plays in immigrant families. 
Rabia Chowdhury's new book, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, lives up lavishly to its subtitle, A Memoir of Food, Fat, and Family. Chaudhry is a lawyer and author. Her earlier book, Adnan's story about her view that the investigation and prosecution of Adnan Sayed had been mishandled became an HBO special. The charges against Sayed now have been dropped. Welcome to On the Record, Rabia. Hi, thank you for having me, Sheila. You were born in Lahore, Pakistan. You were just six months old when your family moved to the U.S., and food already was a charged issue for you, although baby Rabia probably didn't know it yet. Explain that early time. Yeah, I, I was very much almost at the mercy of uh, the Nestle Corporation right out of the womb because in, in the 1970s, there was like this big campaign uh, in the subcontinent, at least, um, for mothers to be told that breast milk is not good for your children. It carries disease and that all the women in the West are now using um, a formula. And so my mom was sent home with me with formula and, um, and, and told very strongly, do not breastfeed. You know, it's not good for the baby. And my grandfather looked at that breast, that, that bought that uh, box of formula and said, absolutely not. I'm not gonna, I don't know what's in this. These are chemicals. You cannot give this to the baby. It's okay if you don't want to breastfeed, but then she's getting buffalo milk. So he literally bought a buffalo to tie in our front yard. And as a newborn infant, this I'm was, being said, this rich, was in Pakistan. This was in Pakistan, rich, fatty buffalo milk. Um, but it got worse when I got to America. <laughs> yeah. How so? Um, well, what happened was I, I then eventually got jaundice. I lost a bunch of weight. And my so my mother and father, they immigrated here. And my mother was an immigrant suddenly without um, like the village to help her raise the baby. And uh, I was a scrawny little thing at this point. And she asked a friend who was a nurse, you know, I, how do I chub her back up? You know, she doesn't even look healthy. And uh, Auntie, her name was Sheila as well. Auntie Sheila said, just give her a little bit half and half. And my mom didn't understand what she meant. And she gave me bottles of half and half. Um, and when I began teething, she gave me frozen sticks of butter to teeth on because she thought it'd be good for me. There's just this concept back home that giving babies really rich dairy products uh, is actually good for them, and I got a lot of them. Your mother was, your mother is a formidable woman. Yes. Tell us a little about her. Yeah, Ami was uh, kind of a you know a unicorn for 1974 Pakistan. She was 27, not married, a working woman. I mean, very rare. Didn't want to get married. Kept rejecting proposals. Just wanted to work. And finally, her father was like, I'm dying. You've got to say yes. And she said, OK, fine, I'll, I'll grudgingly say yes. I don't even care who the guy is. Um, but beyond that, she's always been kind of this larger than life um, figure. Just as the eldest of seven, she was used to kind of running the home. And then by the age of 20, she was running an entire school. Um, so, yeah, she's 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 still running the joint at 75. <laughs> And your father, a veterinarian, had risen about as far as he could in his profession in Pakistan. What was his life like when he immigrated to the U.S.? Yeah, he he um, is a veterinary doctor, and he was the head veterinarian of the the National Zoo in Lahore. So he was very, you know, had a very respectable position. But when he came to the United States, just like so many others, you know, he had to start wherever he could. So he was a security guard. He worked in a lab. He had to do some of he had to do his masters, I think, over again here in America. Uh, even though he had a doctorate there, um, eventually, eventually, after I think by the time I was two or three, he finally got his first job working in the veterinary field here. What was your life like growing up? I mean, I, it was really charmed. I look, I my my mom, had, my mother had another uh, daughter at um, when I was two years old, but she, we she gone back to Pakistan, 
had my little sister and then left her there for another few years. So I kind of was raised as the only, and then brought, came back with me. And I was raised as the only child for like four or five years. And my parents loved food and America was the land of abundance. They had never seen or heard of such foods in their lives. They ate it all and they fed it all to me. And it felt, it felt like love to all of us, but it, it, it wasn't <laughs> at the end of the day, none of it was really good for us. And we really leaned into convenience foods and fried foods and fatty foods um, and, and processed stuff because to the immigrant mind, um, what you can find in America is good and pure because the American government wouldn't feed its citizens anything that wasn't good and pure. Um, and we heard that a lot growing up, that the food here is pure, but the food back home is not. During elementary school and, and your teenage years, did you think of yourself as fat? You know, I kept hearing these messages, you got to do something, you got to do something about this, you know, just lose 10. It, it was never like, it was always like just 10, 15 pounds, just 15, 20 pounds. And to my mind, I and I would look in the mirror and I'm like, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and I, my mind, I was real nerd. So all I cared about was like reading and just, you know, doing real nerdy things. And I wasn't too concerned about it. I, there were moments, you know, uh, when I when I was, it kind of felt like, well, maybe I should. And I started jogging, I think, when I was 11 or 12 for a little, for a very brief period. But it wasn't an overwhelming concern. I certainly didn't feel any self-loathing around it or, you know, and, and when my parents said these things to me and my family did, um, it didn't feel malicious. It really felt like a place of love. And I'm like, oh, they're just whatever. They love me. It's not a big deal. It wasn't until my first marriage, which was um, a really abusive marriage that you know, then it felt those comments were clearly malicious and hateful. And that's what led me into getting to a place where I finally did hate myself. And I want to ask you about that. And let me just say first, this is lawyer and author Rabia Chaudhry on the record on WYPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about her compelling new memoir, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. This book is such a page turner, so well written. Dozens of characters, high points, low points, hilarious events, humiliating incidents. I'd like listeners to hear a snatch of your writing. The point when the title of the book first appears in the text. And first, set set the scene for us. You're in Pakistan for a big family gathering for the wedding of an aunt, and you're 11 years old. Yeah, I'm 11 years old. This is like the, 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 the trip of our dreams because I had never witnessed a Pakistani wedding, and it was like something we saw in films and stuff, and I was very excited, and my aunt was like a princess bride. And so <clears throat> this is like in the middle, and, and these weddings take forever, so it was like weeks and weeks of this kind of stuff. But... So this is me just sitting and uh, and my uncle, Bummy Mama, one of my uncles um, who I love very dearly and who has been tubby his entire life, starts speaking to me. So I'm just going to pick it up there. Oi, Morty, no one will marry you. My middle uncle, Bummy Mama, crooned at me at the back of my nanny's house. That means grandmother. Half teasing, half concerned. Morty, fat female, was one of many nicknames I collected during that trip. I was also Golgappa, shaped like a spherical street snack stuffed with chickpeas and potatoes. Fatty, fatty, boom, boom. My Thaya's son, Rahman, said affectionately to me as we were having breakfast one morning. I halted mid-bite, but he softened. No, no, eat. See, I'm a fatty, fatty, boom, boom, too. And he was. Rahman was huge, nearly six foot four and likely 250 pounds. But very quickly, I learned it didn't matter for men. I pointed out to Pummy Mama, who had gone through multiple engagements, but was still not married, that he was no Mr. Universe either with his, with his paunchy gut. He leaned close and said, Morty, don't you understand? Men can look like anything as long as they have good jobs and homes. 
but girls cannot look like middle-aged women before they're even married. There's so much in that, uh, starting with the nicknames that you had to live with, but also this idea that getting married was the whole point, that I mean, for a lot of American girls in the 1980s, getting married was an option. But in your culture, nothing else mattered. For parents, it's not just like, this is not a pressure that they feel. uh, It's an internal pressure. If they cannot get their children married and settled, and believe me, when when kids there get married and and kids in our culture get married, families are getting married. Um, And if they can't do that, they have failed their duty. Like God has assigned this duty to them and they have failed it if they can't get their kids married, like literally. So it's, um, yeah, and it does, it kind of doesn't matter. And this is true for men and for sons and daughters that if your son is 35 and he's not married, people are like, something is deeply wrong. It doesn't matter if he's like, you know, uh, if he's the vice president of the country, (laughs) it just doesn't matter. Um, You can be highly successful, but if you have not settled down, you've literally just, um, what's the purpose of your life if you are not uh, getting married and having children? What's the purpose? So fast forward 10 years, you're studying at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You still have a tense relation with food. Instead of the freshman 15, you gain 25 pounds your first year. And then you decide to marry even earlier than your parents wanted. What was behind that? Yeah, you know, I grew up with these messages of nobody, nobody's going to want to marry you. Like there's just, you know, and I also would hear, I would hear conversations, like kind of whispered conversations that people are getting interested in Lily, my younger sister. Like we're interested for our son, for Lily, but it's improper to send a proposal for a younger sister if the older one isn't taken taken already. So people would say, is Rabia already, are you guys talking to somebody for Rabia so we can like look at Lily? Um, and it wasn't happening. And I, and you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm like in the way of my little sister getting married. And I met this young guy and, um, and he was charming and had all the swag and um, just swept me off my feet. And very, like, within meeting me a few times, said, I want to marry you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And I jumped at it. And I and I also, you know, I, I was charmed by him. I thought he was very handsome and cute. And so did my friends. And I thought, this is, I am proving, you know, 20 years of, of messages wrong. And um, I immediately said yes, without really seeing the red flags there. Because it turned out to be an abusive marriage and also a very traditional Muslim situation, Pakistani. Oh, I would say Pakistani situation, yeah, <laughs> where he, because he was he was here as a student from Pakistan. He was studying um, civil engineering, and he had told me, you know, and, you know, I thought this was his way of, you know, and, and I'm sure it was, of connecting and kind of sharing his childhood, that his father, um, he had watched his father beat his mother his entire life. And when he told me that, I was shocked because I had never seen my father do anything like that. And I felt so much empathy and sympathy, not understanding this, how cycles of abuse work and how when he is also going to be in a marriage, he's probably, unless he's worked and, you know, prof- gotten some professional help, he's going to react like that. And that's what he did. He just fell right into that cycle immediately. In that marriage, you were expected to cook for him and his parents and family. Ten, ten in-laws. Um, I lived with all 10 and I had to cook. I had to make sure I had lunch and dinner for all of them each day. While you were cooking? finishing college while i was in law school while i was working a part-time job and i had a baby yeah i was surviving i'm gonna skip over a lot to ask this you you take us through so many ways you tried to deal with your weight in your 40s you write you've learned that your body is not the enemy yeah 
Yeah, I mean, look, I I happened, and I'd explain how um, to start personal training um, because uh, I met a woman who told me that she got personal. And I, well, that was the one thing I hadn't tried. I had tried everything. I ran five miles a day. I did elliptical. I did every diet on the in the universe. I st- climbed to the Stairmaster. I mean, like, name it. I did it. Um, I had never tried a personal trainer. First of all, they're very expensive. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give this a shot for a little bit, um, just for a few months. And at that point, I'm in my 40s, and I have absolutely no hope that at this age that my body can even res- would even respond. It wouldn't respond in the 20s. How is it going to respond now? And I was introduced for the first time to weight training and strength training. And within months, my body completely changed. It was responding to everything. I didn't run a single lap. I had lost 40 pounds. I had gained muscle. I was flipping tires and jump. I mean, doing things I thought would break my knees. Um, and that's when I realized all this time, my body was not the enemy. My body, I just, I didn't know what to give her. I didn't know what my body needed. And I tried everything and I felt like she was the one failing me when really um, all I was failing her. And that's because I had been given wrong information most of, much of my life, like most people. There is a lot of wisdom and a lot of fun in this book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rabia Chaudhry's new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. On December 8th, she'll discuss the book at the Enoch Pratt Free Library Central Branch, 7 p.m., part of the Pratt's Writers Live series. She'll be in conversation with Marcia Chatelain, history and African-American studies professor at Georgetown University. We have information about it at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.